The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Okay, our sermon today is Judges 1, verses 27 through 36. It's entitled, The Boundary of the Amorites. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages, or Ta'anach and its villages, nor did the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanite who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Achlab or Achziv, Helba, Afik or Rehov. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beit Anat. But they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh and Beit Anat were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres, in Aijalon, and in Sha'abim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now, the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akravim, from Selah, and upward. While typing the first half of the sermon, I was almost depressed by the state of the content of what is being presented. A tribe is introduced into the narrative, and it immediately says that the tribe failed to drive out the inhabitants. By the time my friend Sergio woke up and greeted me, which was when half the day was already over, I gave him this short reply. Judges 1, 27 through 36, depressing. They didn't dispossess. Again and again, it says this. Under law, they were commanded to dispossess the inhabitants. Tribe by tribe, their failure is recorded. In his commentary on verse 28, Charles Ellicott cited a lengthy article by someone named Mosley. It was as depressing to me as the narrative in Judges 1. A short portion of it says, As to the morality of these exterminating wars, we must bear in mind that men and nations must alike be judged by the moral standard of their own day, not by the advanced morality of later ages. We learn from unanimous testimony that the nations of Canaan had sunk to the lowest and vilest depths of moral degeneracy. When nations have fallen thus low, the cup of their iniquity is full. They are practically irreclaimable. To mingle with them would inevitably be to learn their works, for their worst abominations would find an ally in the natural weakness and corruption of the human heart. The Israelites therefore believed that it was their positive duty to destroy them, and the impulse which led them to do so was one which sprang from their best, not from their worst, instincts. It must not be forgotten that the teaching of Christ has absolutely changed the moral conceptions of the world. It intensified to a degree which we can hardly estimate our sense of the inalienable rights of humanity and the, of the individual man. Our text verse comes from Psalm 106. It is verses 34 through 36. They did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. 
Israel was told to destroy the inhabitants of Canaan. This wasn't simply because Israel believed it was their positive duty. Instead, it was because the law commanded them to do so. Thus, their failure is a violation of the law. As for the comments about Christ absolutely changing the moral conceptions of the world, that is so out of touch with reality that it is hard to imagine that Ellicott would cite the commentary. Israel was under law. We are under grace. The reason Christians don't go killing pagans and heathens has nothing to do with moral conceptions. There's simply no allowance for it. The church is not a nation, and it has no divine mandate for such things. Mosley even admits that. Nothing has changed in moral conceptions by saying, when nations have fallen thus low, the cup of their iniquity is full. They are practically irreclaimable. That is the state of the world today. The rest that aren't there yet are quickly catching up. The only difference between the calling of the peoples that Israel was supposed to affect and the calling of the world that will come about in the probably near future is who will accomplish it. The purpose of the law was to lead people to the understanding of their need for Christ. Sin is the problem, and it must be judged. God will not overlook a single sin ever committed. The difference between believers and unbelievers is that sin in believers is judged in Christ. Unbelievers will be held accountable for their sins. Judges 1 provides a snapshot of God's work in Christ in a positive way. It takes real stories of real events that took place, including the disobedience of Israel, and shows us how God, through Jesus, is completing what Israel would not complete. They could not complete it, meaning the restoration of the human family into one group. And he is doing it in this chapter through 10 named sons of Israel. Of the number 10, Bollinger states, completeness of order marking the entire round of anything is therefore the ever-present signification of the number 10. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. God is using Israel to show us other, more wonderful things in typology. It is a marvelous way for us to see clearly what is going on in the history of redemption. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is epic fail. It's verses 27 through 36. In the previous verses, the land of Judah, which includes Simeon, whose inheritance is within Judah's borders, was described. That was verses 1, 1 through 20. That was followed by a note concerning Benjamin's failure to drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem, 121. After that, we see the combined house of Joseph in a brief conquest, 122 through 26. This broad brushstroke of tribal matters that started in the very southern part of the land continued northward. That continues with the words that closely follow Joshua 17, 11 through 13, beginning with verse 27. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages. Literally, Velohorish Manasseh et Bethshan veet Benotecha, and no dispossess Manasseh, Bethshan, and her daughters. The term daughters is referring to the smaller villages that surround the main city. Here we have a look at the failures of the tribes west of the Jordan located north of Benjamin to properly eradicate the inhabitants of the land. The list begins with the half-tribe of Manasseh and moves northward to the central and northern areas of Canaan. Notice the progression. First Benjamin, then the house of Joseph, and here it continues with Manasseh and then Ephraim, the two sons of Joseph. This is likely to draw attention to the success of the house of Joseph when they worked together. But when they did not, their failures are noted. As for the names, Manasseh means to forget and from a debt. Bitshan means house of ease or house of security. Next, verse 27 continues, or Ta'anach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. The meaning of Ta'anach is uncertain. 
Some think it is derived from an Egyptian or Arabic word. There is no corresponding root found in scripture. Jones's Dictionary of Old Testament Proper Names cites an equivalent Arabic verb that means to wander and thus translates it as wandering through. Dor means to dwell, but it is identical to the word translated as generation, as in the time period of one's dwelling. Ibliam means devouring the people or the people flow forth. Megiddo comes from gadad, meaning to penetrate or cut. Hence, it signifies invading or intruding. The cities just mentioned are listed as belonging to the half-tribe of Manasseh in Joshua 17, verse 11. However, they're actually located within other tribal inheritances. I don't know if you remember that, but some of the tribal inheritances were actually in other tribes' land. It says there in Joshua and in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Bethshan and its towns, Ibleam and its towns, the inhabitants of Dor and its towns, the inhabitants of Endor and its towns, the inhabitants of Ta'anach and its towns, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its towns, three hilly regions. The meaning is probably that the tribes failed to work together, which was the reason to put them commingled like that is so they would work together. A state of spiritual lethargy has settled in. Rather than relying on the Lord and join with their brothers, they've thrown up their hands and are unwilling to do what is necessary to drive the inhabitants out. Now, remember, these inhabitants picture things going on in your life. Are you driving out the inhabitants that don't belong there in your life? Right? The reason for the failure, an inexcusable reason, is next provided. Verse 27 continues, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. Once again, think of yourself. Do you have something that's determined to live in that land and you're unwilling to drive it out? It is singular. And determined the Canaanite to dwell in the land, the this. The words of this clause are taken letter for letter from Joshua 17, verse 12. Canaanite means humiliated, humbled, or subdued. The inhabitants were determined, so Manasseh chose to live with them. This shows a lack of trust in the power of the Lord and an unwillingness to ask the other tribes to assist them in destroying the natives. This is evident from the next words, verse 28. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanite under tribute but did not completely drive them out. So you're benefiting off your sins is what that means. With a few minor word and spelling differences, the words are very close to those of Joshua 17:13. It says in Joshua, and it was when strong sons Israel, and they gave the Canaanite to forced labor and dispossessing. The word is spelled a certain way, not he dispossessed him. In Judges, it says, and it was when strong Israel instead of strong sons Israel. So they took out the word sons. And he put instead of they gave. And he put the Canaanite to forced labor and dispossessing. It says, ve-horish. And it has an additional yod in there. One extra letter. Not he dispossessed him. The differences are enough to let us know the words were not simply copied from one account to the next. And yet one confirms the other because of the high level of similarity between the two. If they were able to make these people submit to forced labor, then they were able to exterminate them. They just didn't. This became a marriage of convenience for Manasseh and of inconvenience but acceptable tolerance to the Canaanite. With this sad commentary concerning Manasseh complete, it next turns to his younger brother, Ephraim. Verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. It is singular in reference to both entities. Ve'Ephraim lohorish et haknaani hayoshev begazer vayeshev haknaani bekirbo begazer. And Ephraim no dispossessed the Canaanite, the dweller in Gezer, and dwelt the Canaanite in his midst in Gezer. Notice that nothing is said of them being brought under forced labor. Because of this, it is common for scholars to say that they made a covenant of friendship with them or something similar. This is incorrect. It expressly says that they were put to forced labor in Joshua 16, verse 10. Ephraim means twice fruitful and ashes. Gezer means part or portion. 
Gezer will remain under the control of the Canaanites until the time of King Solomon. In 1 Kings 9, it says this, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire, had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. Like their brother Manasseh, this became a marriage of convenience for Ephraim and of inconvenience but acceptable tolerance to the Canaanite. Likewise, verse 30, nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Ketron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. Vezebulun lehorish et yoshve Ketron ve et yoshve Nahalol. And Zebulun no dispossessed dwellers Ketron and dwellers Nahalol. Zebulun means glorious dwelling place. The name Ketron is found only here in scripture. Nahalol is certainly the same place spelled elsewhere as Nahalal and Nahalal with one L. Thus, both cities are probably variant spellings of the first two cities, which are mentioned in Joshua 19, verse 15. Included were Katat, Nahalal, Shemron, Idala, and Bethlehem, 12 cities with their villages. Ketron comes from one of several possible roots. The first is Ketor, thick smoke. That is derived from the verb katar, meaning to make sacrificial smoke. As such, it would mean something like place of incense burning, or it may also come from the word katan, to be small. If so, it would mean little one. Nahalol is identical to Nahalol found in Isaiah 7:19. There it is translated as pastures or watering holes. Young's says commendable things. That then comes from Nahal to lead or guide to a watering place or a place of rest. The most known use of that is found in Psalm 23. He leads Nahal, me, beside the still waters. Strong's defines it as pasture. I define it as led to rest. Verse 30 continues. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. More precisely, it says, and dwelt the Canaanite in his midst and were to force labor. The same pattern of disobedience and driving out the inhabitants has been seen in each tribe thus far mentioned. As for Asher, verse 31, nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab, Achsiv, Helba, Afik, or Rehov. This continues the unhappy list of disobedience. One tribe after another is failing to do what the Lord instructed through Moses. Asher means happy or blessed. Akko is found only here. Where its root is from is not certain. Some say it's Egyptian, some say Chaldean, others say it's Arabic. Others even think it may be Greek. Abarim gets its best shot with serpent or sunstruck. Strong suggests it comes from a root meaning to hem in. Sidon means hunting place or fishery. Achlav is found only here. It comes from chelev, meaning fat. Thus it means fertile or abundant. Achsiv comes from achsav, deceptive or disappointing. That comes from kazav, to be a liar. Thus, it literally means lying or liar, but the intent is probably deceptive or disappointing. Strong says deceive. Chelba also comes from chelev, fat. Thus, Strong defines it as fertility. Afik is the same as afek mentioned elsewhere. It comes from afak, meaning to contain, refrain, or be strong. Hence, it is fortress. Rehov means wide space or open place. Verse 32, so the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Rather, it is singular mixed with the plural, and dwelt the Asherite in midst the Canaanite inhabitants the land. Instead of placing the Canaanite in the midst of whatever particular tribe, as has been seen in the previous verses, it places the Asherite in the midst of the Canaanite. Verse 32 continues, for they did not drive them out. It is referring to the Canaanite. Ki lo horisho, for no did drive him out. Of this, Cambridge says, originally, no doubt, the text ran, was not able to drive them out. And then they cite the Greek translation. In other words, they believe that the Greek translation, which says, was not able to, is the original. That doesn't bear up at all with the first clause, nor with the number of cities that were left in Canaanite hands. Rather, the Hebrew is correct. Thus, it is a resounding note of abject failure on the part of Asher. 
Along with them, the list of botched jobs continues. Verse 33, nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beit Anat. Naphtali followed suit with the others and failed to do as instructed. Beit Shemesh means house of the sun. Beit Anat comes from Beit, house, and Ana, a word having four distinct meanings, to answer or respond, be occupied with, to afflict, oppress, or humble, or to sing. Thus it means house of answer, house of bitterness, house of affliction, or house of singing. Verse 33 continues, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Each is referred to in the singular, and he dwelt in midst the Canaanite inhabitants, the land. Like Asher, Naphtali is placed among the Canaanites rather than the Canaanites dwelling among them. But Naphtali at least made it hard on those around them. Verse 33, continuing, nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh and Beit Anat were put under tribute to them. Like other cities and some of the tribes, Naphtali got the upper hand on the inhabitants and profited off of them, but they failed to do as instructed in the law. Being the first chapter of Judges, it is a depressing anticipation of the problems that lie ahead for Israel because of their disobedience to the Lord. Next, verse 34, and the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. The lack of properly translating the words as given in the text is maddening. It reads, and pressed the Amorite, sons Dan, the mountain word, for not would he give him to come down to the valley. It carries the sense of Dan trying to come down the side of the mountain, but the Amorite was so numerous and strong that they literally pressed Dan toward the mountainous area, keeping them from the emek or depth below it. Amorite means renown. Dan means judge. A mountain, a har, is a lot of something gathered. It is synonymous with a large but centralized group of people. The reason for Dan's failure is stated as follows. Verse 35, and the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Hares, in Ijalon, and in Sha'albim. Rather, and was determined the Amorite to dwell in Mount Hares, in Ijalon, and in Sha'albim. Cheres is found only here. It comes from Cheres, the sun. Strong's defines it as shining. Abarim goes with sun or irritant, like the sun getting in your eyes. Ajalon comes from Ayal, a deer. Hence, it signifies place of the deer. However, that comes from the same root as Ayil, a ram, which is derived from a word indicating strength. Hence, place of strength is not out of line. Sha'al beam comes from Shu'al, a fox. Thus, most commentators call it foxes or place of foxes. That, however, comes from Sho'al, hollow hand or handful. And the meaning extends to this. The connection is that foxes will dig out a hollow to live in. In the Gospels, Jesus said this, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's Matthew 8, verse 20. We also see this in Luke. On that very same day, Pharisees came to him saying, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Thus, the meaning would extend to place of hole diggers, meaning those who try to trip others up. Verse 35 continues, yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. The sense is correct, but it reads, and became heavy hand house Joseph, and they were to forced labor. The house of Joseph must be speaking of Ephraim and Manasseh together. It appears to indicate that they were willing to work together and bring their combined hand down upon the inhabitants. However, instead of destroying them, they put them to forced labor. It is a final failure in a chapter that has highlighted many failures of the tribes of Israel, beginning in verse 119. With that complete, a final word concerning the Amorite is provided. Verse 36 finishes with, now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Ve'gevul ha'emori mimale Akrabim mehaselah va'ma'elah. 
and border the Amorite from Ascent Akravim, from the crag and upward. Ma'ale Akravim means Ascent of Scorpions. There are scorpions in this barren area. But in scripture, the scorpion is also used figuratively for a scourge. If Selah is the name of a location, this is the only time it is mentioned. But Ha Selah means the crag. It speaks of a craggy rock or cliff. Because of this, Barnes thinks it is referring to the same location where Moses and Aaron were told to bring water from the rock, the Selah. Whether that is correct or not, and I think it probably is, there's no reason to assume it isn't. The Selah is used to refer to Jesus typologically in Numbers chapter 20 as the giver of the water of life. It is debated what these words are telling us. They are affixed at the end of the chapter, and so they are summing something up. Some think it is telling us that it is a way of saying that only the southern area of the land was secured. Ellicott says this, This notice is added to account for the obstinate resistance of the Amorites by showing the extent of their domain, which reached far to the south of Petra, meaning Selah is referring to Petra. That would be his analysis. Another opinion given is that this verse is added to sum up the chapter by showing that neither the northern, eastern, nor western boundaries were thoroughly secured, but only those of the southern tribes. What I submit is completely different than anybody else I have read, but I'm sure it's correct. We are being told a sad truth. The ascent of Akravim is the most southern point of the land of Israel. It was referred to when the Lord determined the borders in Numbers 34, verse 4. It was noted again in Joshua 15, verse 3, when describing the southern boundary of Judah. This is the last time it is mentioned in Scripture. In Joshua 24, 12, the two kings of the Amorites were mentioned. This was not speaking of the two kings, Sihon and Og, on the eastern side of the Jordan. Rather, it was collectively speaking of the inhabitants placed under the Amorites on the east and the Amorites on the west in relation to the Jordan River. Directions are not described as north being up and south being down as we refer to them. However, the word Allah up or above, does refer to that which follows, such as in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. There it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. That word, va-ma'elah. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. As this chapter has been dealing with the tribes within Canaan, beginning with Judah in the south and going forward, this final verse is essentially saying, and the border of the Amorite is from the ascent of Akrabim, from the crag, a noticeable crag where the most southern tip of Canaan is located, and upward, meaning all the way north through the tribal inheritances in Canaan. We can first look at the victory of the Lord in Joshua as the book closed out as evidence of this. Joshua 24, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. Immediately after these words, Judges 2 began with these words. Then the angel of the Lord, Judges 2, that's next week's sermon. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Despite Canaan being given to Israel, and despite the Lord defeating the Amorite continuously under Joshua, the people failed to continue with what he had begun. The land of Canaan was filled with the Amorite. An inheritance awaits us that is sure and true. It is given to all who come forward and receive. It was secured by Christ Jesus, who makes all things new. It is ours for the taking if we just believe. 
Calling on Jesus is what is good in God's sight. The inheritance is ours, though we did nothing it to receive. Eternal life, dazzling and bright, is ours for the taking, if we just believe. Don't fail to come forward. Hear the plea. It is waiting if you will but receive. You and all the saints around the glassy sea, it is yours for the taking, if you just believe. Our second thought today is epic fail, Israel. Epic achievement, Christ. The first two sermons in Judges 1 dealt with one, the matter of Adoni Bezek, who was defeated, and then two, the subduing of foes within Judah and the taking of Kiriath Sefer. The victor over Kiriath Sefer was given Achsa as his wife. There was the bringing together of the people groups of the world through the gospel in the first account. In the second, the completed work of Christ was seen to go from Jewish believers to Gentile believers. In the third sermon, shorter snapshots were seen giving pictures of the church age, of doctrines, both false and proper, the continued obstinacy of the Jews to come to Christ until after the church age, the process of salvation, and so on. That was all last week's sermon. The verses here begin with Manasseh. As always, the name anticipates Christ who forgets our sins, having paid our sin debt. In relation to Manasseh was Bethshan, house of security. It is the state of the believer in Christ. Ta'anach, wandering through, is our state in the world as we anticipate the rapture and glorification. That continues to be explained by door, to dwell, specifically the time of one's dwelling. The next name, Ibleam, the people flow forth, speaks of the multitude who are reckoned among the church. Megiddo, invading, refers to the progress made in the world of fallen man. Even if it's not all-encompassing, signified by the determination of the Canaanites to not be dispossessed. Finally, we see, and it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. The church is in the commonwealth of Israel. While national Israel has been on the outs, the church has grown strong, but has not, nor will it, completely subdue the world. Ephraim, twice fruitful and ashes, was then brought in. As always, he anticipates Christ, who brings in both Jews and Gentiles through the work of his afflictions. It is he who grants our portion, signified by Gezer. Zebulun, glorious dwelling place, was next named in connection with Ketron, place of incense burning. Christ is the one who grants the glorious dwelling place for his people through his sacrifice. The word Qatar doesn't just signify manufactured incense, but that of sacrifices and offerings, such as Exodus 29:25. You shall receive them back from their hands, speaking of the sacrificial animals, and burn, Qatar, them on the altar as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire to the Lord. What we have seen in Judges 1 is a contrast between Israel under the law and the work of Christ in the church because of the grace of Christ. Through accepting his sacrifice, the next location, Nahalol, led to rest, is then realized. After Zebulun, Asher, happy or blessed was named. It is the state of the believer because of the work of Jesus Christ. The name Akko is obscure, so I won't even attempt its meaning. However, Sidon, fisher, logically points us to Jesus' words about his followers being fishers of men. Achlab, fertile or abundant, follows after that in the harvest that has come. The next, achziv, deceive, refers to those who claim the gospel but never believe. Paul speaks of such in 2 Timothy. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Sounds like somebody we talked about in the Prophecy Update today. Helba, fertility, speaks of the state of the world ready to be evangelized. Afik, fortress, refers to the secure state of those in Christ, while Rechov, wide space, speaks of their freedom in him, no longer bound by the constraints of the law and thus freedom from sin. Naphtali, my wrestlings, was next named. It speaks of the work of Christ on behalf of believers. In connection with that is named Beit Shemesh, house of the sun. As seen in Joshua, it is a reference to Malachi chapter 2. 
But to you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Also, Betana is a name that fully depends on one of four roots, each of which could point to the work of Christ. House of singing is sufficient. That would be an apt description of believers in the Lord. Lastly, Dan, judge, was named. Christ is the one to judge his people and to judge for his people. In connection with Dan was noted the Amorite, renown. As seen elsewhere, the name can be used positively about believers or negatively about non-believers. In this case, it is referring to those who have their renown because of Christ. The named cities are Mount Cheres. The mount, as we know, is a large but centralized group of people. Mount Cheres, or Shining, would thus refer to the glorious church that Paul refers to in Ephesians 5, verse 27. Aijalong, place of strength, refers to the state of the church in Christ, as in Philippians 4, 13, and so on. And Sha'albim, place of foxes and thus place of hole diggers, looks to the church where Satan and those opposed to the gospel are continuously trying to trip up believers to be ineffective. With that noted, the final part of verse 35 said, when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. It speaks of the final state of the world of believers in Christ. Joseph, he shall add, take away, will eventually completely prevail over those who have come against it. Jesus is the one to add to his church, both Jews and Gentiles, having taken away their reproach. At this time, it is a Gentile-led body, with some Jews included. Someday, the house of Joseph, meaning believers in Christ, will be fully formed from both. With this overall snapshot of what is going on in the church, as opposed to what was seen in the history of Israel— Verse 36 abruptly introduced the words and border the Amorite from ascent Akravim, from the crag and upward. It speaks of those in the church, renowned, who began with the work of Christ, Akravim, signified by his scourges and which allowed the water of life to flow from him, Haselah, the rock, and then continue from that point on. It takes the flow of Judges chapter 1 directly back to the first account in the chapter that of Adoni Bezek. The uniting of the family of God was realized in the pouring out of the Spirit. The 70 kings representing the 70 main families of all the people on earth who were disabled at the dividing of the tongues, meaning Babel, are brought back together under Christ into one family because of the giving of the Spirit. Each of these accounts of the 10 named tribes has given details of the work of God in Christ and how it relates to his people. Some have given much more details, such as Judah mentioning Caleb to introduce the Gentiles in order to complete a picture of what is going on. The shorter accounts, such as that of Zebulun, are no less important. They just focus on a particular aspect. The really interesting part in all of this to me is that 10 sons are named in the process, even though Levi is obviously not mentioned because he has no tribal inheritance. But what about Issachar? Those names are Judah, Simeon, Benjamin, Joseph, Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. By naming Joseph separately, which is inclusive of Manasseh and Ephraim, this was made possible. You've got Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Okay, they could have just said Ephraim and Manasseh or just said Joseph. Think of it. To fit the typology, Joseph was included in this chapter along with his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. If he wasn't, it would mean that only nine tribes were named. Nine is the number of finality and judgment. That's not the focus of Judges 1. Likewise, if Issachar, whose name doesn't fit the typology, was named, the number would be 11. The number of disorder, disorganization, imperfection, and disintegration would be the result. That wouldn't make any sense at all. The cycle from the account of Adoni Bezek to the last cryptic words of the chapter is seen to be complete in the typology presented. The overall picture is very well displayed in what has been provided. Be confident that even such hopeless and depressing accounts of Israel's failures are there for a greater purpose. Their failures and ours only highlight the incredible splendor of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Having said that, don't shoot for failure so that God will be magnified even more. 
Paul warns us about such an attitude in our closing verse today. Rather, shoot for your very best because you are honoring the very greatest, Jesus. I was so depressed halfway through typing this sermon. Until I got to the typology, I was literally depressed. They failed. They failed. And I I told Sergio, I said, I'm so sad sitting here typing this sermon. It's us. It's us failing him. And I was just miserable thinking of my own failures before the Lord until I got to the typology. And then I was at the end of my seat. Thank thank God for Jesus. All of my failures he can use for a good end. All of them. Thank God for Jesus. I'm telling you, it is so exciting to see what God is doing in the precious pages and chapters and paragraphs and words of Scripture. It's so exciting. We've got all this depression. I mean, we get through judges. You might as well just pull out a gun if you don't know what the typology is. There there are stories that are so, the last one, you know, the guy has the daughter and he goes down south to get her and it's terrible. It's terrible. But there is going to be great typology that comes out of that. I assure you of it. I can absolutely assure you that if it follows the pattern here, and think of it, we've got this entire chapter. We got it starting on one note. It gets down to the end with a, a verse that nobody understood. Nobody I read understood what was going on at all, but it ties directly back to verse one. It's a circle of perfection of God in Christ. It's so beautiful. Cherish this word. Absolutely cherish this word. It is worth every moment that you put into it. Next week, we're going to have a great sermon. What I would like you to do, and I'll tell you what it is in a minute, but we're going to have a great sermon. I would like you to read it and find out where you think it fits in the chronology of Israel. Does it fit right where he's saying it? Does it fit somewhere else before? Does it fit somewhere else after? Just look at it and see if you can figure it out. I don't want you to tell me what you think. I just want you to think about it and then see if you got it right. If you did, then you can tell me, I actually got that, okay? I saw no commentary that I think fits what I have submitted. So I could be wrong, but I've submitted it and I used it in today's sermon, but I didn't use it in the context of what we're going to talk about next week. So don't look at this week and say, oh, don't do that. Okay. One more thing I'd like to tell you before we read our closing verse. Jesus died for your sins. He really did this. This is the Lord God incarnate. Now, I don't make the mistake that God died on the cross. God did not die. The human Jesus, who God united with humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. God never stopped living. He's always been alive. He will always be alive. He did not stop existing or anything like that. The human part of Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin debt. That actually happened, that God was willing to take this torturous punishment upon himself for what we have done wrong. And then he was buried, and then he rose again. I talked to a guy in the projects yesterday, hardly spoke English. He's from Haiti, speaks very good French Creole, by the way. I wonder why. Anyway, but his English is a little lacking. And, but he got the gospel. He already, I think, was saved, but he, he, he needed to have it packaged together for him. And it was so nice, to, even with language barriers, it's so simple It's so simple. And all we do is we throw baggage on top of the gospel and we make it complicated. And in churches, we add every possible thing that isn't the gospel into it. And people never get saved because they got all this stuff going on. It's very simple. God did this for you. If you believe that he did that, you will be saved. Please believe it today. Our closing verse, as I noted a moment ago, uh, is from Romans 3 verse 5. And it's something that we need to make sure that we pay attention to. But if our righteousness, remember, we're doing wrong, demonstrates the righteousness of God, look at how great he is. Look at how bad Charlie is and look how great God is. What shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, I'm out lying, and God is glorified because of his saving me and all the things he does with me in relation to him, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come. The more evil I do, God is glorified because he saved me despite myself. Don't do that. That's a wrong attitude to have. We want to live for God. We want to honor God. But if we fail, he's glorified through the abundant mercy that he bestows upon us is the point, okay? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. 
some people are saying, well, Paul is saying, well, you know, if you sin and God is glorified through it, then he's saying you can do all the sinning you want. Paul is saying that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what any free grace church ever says that I know of. They say that you are given grace without any strings attached. You only believe. And people say, well, that's a heresy. And then they do exactly what they say about Paul here. Rather, that's what the Bible teaches. As Cornelius was standing there, never having done anything, just listening to somebody talk, and the Holy Spirit comes down on because his heart believed. That's the message of the gospel. That is it. Hold fast to grace and do not mar grace. Next week is Judges 2, 1 through 10. Water gushing out of them peepers. It's entitled, The Weepers. That'll be our fifth Judges sermon. I hope you enjoy it. I, there's a couple of them. We did that that Adoni Bezek sermon. I was just so excited about that. This one I'm excited about. I did one uh, this past week. I started the Song of Deborah. Oh man, Judges five. It's it's you know these guys go in and they do all this stuff and it's great typology. But then we go into the poem where they they praise the Lord because of what occurred in chapter four. It's just poetic. It's I haven't been this excited about the construct of the Hebrew since Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses. I loved doing that passage. It is so beautiful. The Hebrew is structured so beautifully. And I did the first five verses, and I was just at the end of my seat. What a wonderful Monday. Great stuff. So I hope you enjoy those two. I mean, I hope you enjoy all of them, but there are certain ones that just are so unique and so interesting. What a great word. Um, The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. So follow him, live for him, and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I've got a a question here for you. I did not think of this question, but um, I think that somebody will get this. It's, It's rather difficult. I've got several things to give away. It might not be that difficult, though, and it, uh, it uh, also has a follow-up. Um, no, it doesn't. Um, uh, just right uh, yes, it does. It has a follow-up question. I, I'm looking at my very poor handwriting. So I got a question for you. It's got a follow-up. If you get this, then I'll allow you to try to get the other one, okay? I, I'm going to make this hard on you because, uh, no, I'm not. I'm just going to make it easy because... This was such a nice gesture. This is from, let me read what I wrote here just so I get all of the details right. I copied down what he said. It's from Jerry and Mary who are out in Helena, Montana. He said, make it a hard question as this is pretty good jam. Delicious on vanilla ice cream. So this was made by them, I guess. And, uh, or maybe they uh, bought it. I don't, I'm not sure if he made it, but he said it's pretty good jam. So I hope you'll enjoy it on some vanilla ice cream. Let me put this back in here. But that was his words. And he said to make the question hard and raise your hand just because everybody's going to get it. And then it wasn't a hard question. But I think it's, it's, here we go. Um, What king destroyed the bronze serpent made by Moses? It was a hard question. Good. No guess? No, it wasn't Ahab. Okay. I'm so sad. That's okay. Somebody gets to try this next week. And we're going to keep doing this one until maybe not. If I wrote an easy one for next week already, then we're not going to go for that. Because he told me to make that a hard question. I may have written an easy one. Okay. Well, these aren't mine, though. This one came from somebody up in Maryland, Bob. And the, question, the answer is King Hezekiah. Okay. Now, the reason why I did it was not bad. It was good. The people were worshiping the thing. Instead of worshiping the Lord who gave this to Israel as a sign, they're worshiping the thing. Now, here's a follow-up question. You don't get this, but um, you get to at least walk away without shame. What did they call it? What, what was the word that they called this, this thing, this serpent? Nehushtan. It, it's right there. Well, and what it means, it has kind of like a play on words. The, the word Nahash is serpent. There's also bronze, which is close to it. And so unclean thing, serpent, bronze, it, it's all kind of tied together. But the word was Nahushtan. Now, that would have been a better hard question, but whatever. Okay, I'm sorry. Nobody gets this delicious jam. Your idea of easy and minor. Well, I said that one would be hard. That was, that was definitely one that was... Uh, Okay, here we go. I got a poem and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. This is The Boundary of the Amorites. 
However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages too, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ivleam and its villages, this they failed to do, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, as they had planned, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong, but obviously not strong enough, no doubt, that they put the Canaanites under tribute but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who in Gezer dwelt. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Together they did melt. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Ketron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, Darnit, and Shut. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and they were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alav, Achsiv, Helba, Afik, or Rehov also. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. They did not make them go. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beit Anat, but they dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh and Beit Anat were put under tribute to them and at their command. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them down to the valley to come. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Hares and Ijalon and Sha'albim, making Dan glum. Yet, when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute like a plucked bird. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim, from Sela and upward. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that when we fail you, you still will remember us. Thank you that you have shown that in the faithfulness that you have displayed towards the people of Israel who failed in every possible way that they could throughout their history. And yet to this day, they are remaining a people and they are brought back into the land to become your people again under the headship of our Lord and Savior Jesus. How faithful you are to your unfaithful creatures. Thank you for that. We praise you for it and we accept it. We don't quite understand it, but we do accept it. Thank you for the grace of God, which is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.